Antic Heart, Chapter 14. I get up early and make my way to Anne Hyde's room. Luckily, I can remember the way, as there is no one about to ask. Occasionally, a servant hurries past, but it is clear that most of the court are still in bed. I walk quickly, and after a few minutes, I'm outside her door. I knock gently and then more loudly. What is it? A sleepy voice calls out. It's me. Mary, I hear a groan from inside. It's barely daybreak, she moans. Come inside if you must, but I will need time to wake up. I open the door and see her form covered by a sheet, with just her hair showing against the pillow. Daybreak was two hours ago, I tell her. Get up now, Anne, I need your help. Oh, not now. She moans, come back later, but I won't give up. I sit on the bed and pull the sheets back, exposing her face to the daylight. She moans again, but then struggles to sit up, pushing her pillows behind her back. So what is it you want? She looks blearily at me. Can you get me presented to Queen Henrietta Maria? I ask. She opens her eyes and looks at me. I think I can, but why the hurry? She's just an old lady. It's really boring in her rooms unless her sons are there and they try to spend as much time as possible away from her. Anne pouts. I would not choose to spend a day with her. I take her hand and lie. My mother loved her. I promised her before she died that I would seek out the Queen and ask for her protection. Anne snorts. She can't give you any protection. She can't even look after herself. I don't know why you're so interested in her. It's a matter of the heart, I tell her. I know the Queen cannot look after me, but I must keep my promise to my mother. Anne groans, pulls the sheets off and swings her bare legs over the side of the bed reluctantly. Very well, if you must, but the Queen will be at Mass first thing. We cannot visit her until afterwards. We could go to Mass now, I say, foolishly, before I remember. The court is Protestant and the King forbids us to take part, Anne reminds me. That was a stupid idea. I forgot. I'm sorry, I tell her. Oh, don't worry, Anne assures me. I don't mind for myself, but my father would be very angry if I went to Mass. Only the Queen and her French ladies attend the Mass. I help Anne to dress. She is wearing the faded pink silk again with a freshly laundered lace collar. 
She does not wear cosmetics, as Lucy does, and I guess that is because her father would disapprove. Edward Hyde may be King Charles's most trusted adviser, but he doesn't like the atmosphere of his court, where women, men, and those who are a bit of both, openly flaunt their sexuality. He would consider rouge as a tool to feed the artifice of loose women, and he certainly wouldn't allow his daughter to use it. Is your father very strict with you? I ask. What does he think of you being at court? Anne grins. He doesn't like it very much. But what can we do? I cannot stay back in England. She sits down to pull her stockings on. What about the other courtiers? What does he make of them? I'm curious. Mostly he despises them. He dislikes Prince Rupert, says he's a violent pirate. And Ormond is always agitating for a force to land in Ireland. Neither of them have the king's best interest at heart. What about the ladies of the court, I ask? What does he think of Henrietta Maria's ladies? Ah, a gaggle of old French aristos, always trying to influence the queen to do what she shouldn't. Anne laughs. I can't imagine why you want to meet them. They're all very holy and none of them any fun. But what about the Countess of Carlisle? I hear that she is fun. I keep my voice neutral. She's a friend of the Queen, not one of her ladies. She's always been a wild one, that lady. But the Queen loves her because she makes her laugh. And does the King love her? My heart is thumping in my chest. She and the King are too similar, Anne pronounces. She's loose like he is and easy with her body. He likes her. He enjoys her company. But no, he will not love her. She's been in too many beds before his. I get a limited amount of reassurance from this. But no, I cannot ask any more. Anne is ready now and we go downstairs to find some breakfast. Mid-morning and we sidle into the Queen's parlour. The ladies that surround her are all in black, as is she. They sit sewing while one of them reads from an improving book. I am disappointed to see that Lucy Carlyle is not there. The Queen looks up at us. Anide, what do you want with me? Is your father speaking to me yet? Anne had told me that Edward Hyde periodically lost his temper over the Queen's interference. Anne beckons to me to approach the Queen with her, and we both move forward and then curtsy deeply. Your Majesty is always happy to speak with you, Anne says diplomatically. Hmm, the Queen is unconvinced. And who is this with you? May I present Lady Mary Hyde, a cousin of mine. She arrived at court yesterday and was insistent that she meet your Majesty. Very well, Lady Mary, you are welcome, the Queen says tiredly. I wonder how many people she has welcomed to her court and how many she has lost. She looks me up and down. And so, what can I do for you, Lady Mary? It is not often that people are in such a hurry to meet me nowadays. I tell her that my mother loved her and it was her dying wish that I meet the Queen 
and seek her protection. She sits up straight in her chair and motions me to sit in a chair beside her. Lady Mary, how are your sewing skills? We sew shirts for the next army the king will raise. My sewing skills are non-existent, so I have to think quickly. Your Majesty, I have sprained my hand, unfortunately. I cannot sew. The Queen's voice is tart. Very well, then you shall read to us. Lady Anne, will you come here and sew? I can see from Anne's face that she is dismayed to be thus trapped in the midst of the Queen and her old ladies. Sighing, she sits down and takes up a needle and thread and a half-finished shirt. I go to the Queen's bookshelf and look despondently at the books. All Catholic theology. But there is one manuscript balanced on top of the books. It is titled The Queen's Closet. Handwritten, it appears to be an account of the remedies and recipes that Henrietta Maria had used. Well, anything is better than a missile, I think, and pick it up. I am halfway through a tincture to be used for fever when the outer door opens with a loud bang. All of the ladies look up and I stop reading. It is Lucy Carlyle, resplendent in scarlet satin, with a black lace mask and a string of black pearls around her neck. She strides into the room, approaches the Queen, then gives her a brief curtsy. Rather than being annoyed, the Queen seems overjoyed to see her. Lucy, she cries, we need some laughter here. Will you join me in an hand of cards? I stare fixedly at Lucy, who does not seem to have noticed me yet. But the Queen waves her hand at me. Lady Mary and Lady Anne, come and join us in a game. Lucy's eyes follow the direction of the Queen's hand. She sees me. For a moment, her eyes flicker. But then she becomes impassive. Yes, join us, ladies. Please, she says. We are in sore need of entertainment. Unwillingly, Anne relinquishes her chair and Lucy immediately seats herself beside the Queen. Anne and I carry two more chairs and place them around the table beside the Queen. We'll play laugh and lie down, the Queen decides. Your Majesty, what a title, I say lightly. Have you been watching the ladies of the court? I'm glad to see that Lucy flushes a little. The Queen is irritated. No, of course not, Lady Mary. We lay our cards down. That is all. I would have thought you would know that. Lucy, shuffle the pack. As we play, I watch Lucy. She is animated and laughs whenever one of us is forced to lie our cards down. I want her so badly. It is torture to sit opposite her and not be able to embrace. I almost wish that she isn't there. It is so difficult. But then I cannot wish her away. We finish the game and Lucy wins. She always wins. The Queen then turns to her. Lucy, Edward Hyde is coming today to show me the fine piece that you brought back from England. 
he thinks I may have some idea of its value. I nearly choked. I wanted to say that it was me who had brought the piece back, but of course I couldn't. Lady Mary could not possibly have been involved in such an adventure. Lucy looked at me and dipped her head for a moment. Was it a recognition of the part I had played? She replies to the Queen. Your Majesty, you may even recognise it. My belief is that it belonged to a very grand personage indeed. I cannot wait to see it, says the Queen. Of course, it will be sold. No matter, my days of expensive jewellery are far behind me. She looks sadly into the distance, remembering her husband who has been dead now for four years. Lucy notices this and then springs up from her chair. She hugs the Queen, who sobs on her shoulder. Only Lucy is able to do that. None of the rest of us could behave with such a lack of respect and get away with it. The Queen recovers and dabs at her eyes. Lucy stands up straight and moves away from the card table. Let me fetch some musicians, Your Majesty. They will make us merry again. I cannot miss this opportunity. I jump up from my seat and make to follow her. I know a fiddle player. Let me see if he's at court today. The Queen shrugs her shoulders. Very well. Whoever you can find. As we walk to the door, I speak under my breath. How are you, my love? Lucy looks ahead, but replies quietly. I miss your sweetness, Henriette. We open the heavy wooden door and go outside. So what has happened to you since we arrived, I ask. Have you seen the king? I know she has. She turns and looks me squarely in the face. Yes, I have, my dear, and I love him. This is a slap across the face. Love? Five minutes ago you were telling me that you loved me. She hushes me. Shh, quiet, my love. You cannot be discovered. I know that Hyde has given you a special task. She takes my hand. Henriette, will you ever understand that love is not to be hoarded, but shared, celebrated and multiplied? I love the king. Yes, I have always had a weakness for clever men and he is clever. And you know, Henriette, when I am with him, I feel I am on the edge of history and that makes me feel alive. So I don't make you feel alive, I challenge her, but I'm afraid of the answer. Lucy is always honest about her feelings. Henriette, I love you. I love your sweetness and your intensity. I would never turn my back on you. But this man, this man, he pulls me towards him. You wouldn't understand, my dear. I wouldn't understand what? The love between a man and a woman? Do you think I am a freak? She shakes her head fiercely. No, my love. Just this man and this woman. You are no freak. No one who loves is a freak. 
Tears come into my eyes. It's just, it's just I miss you so much and I cannot bear it. Lucy stiffens. I am afraid you must bear it, she says flatly. You must accept yourself. You cannot settle down just as I cannot. Whatever you are, you will never sit by the fire and pat your grandchildren on the head. So do as I do and take love where you find it. I incline my head silently. I can see the sense of what she is saying, but it is so terribly hard. Lucy pulls away from me. Haste now, find your fiddle player and I will search for some others. We must hurry. The Queen does not like to be kept waiting. She scurries off down one corridor, leaving me hanging around outside the door of the Queen's chamber. I cannot go and find a fiddle player, as I do not know of one. I suspect that Lucy knew that all along. I wait a decent interval, shivering a little in the draughts. Then I open the door and walk back inside, towards the Queen. I curtsy deeply. As I rise, I say regretfully, Your Majesty, my fiddler is not at court today. He is unwell. She looks disappointed, but then waves at me to sit down. No matter. Lucy will find some musicians. Lucy can find anything. Lucy appears at the door, followed by a horn player, a fiddler and a drummer, all looking a little reluctant. They take a moment or so to set up, and then start playing a merry courante. Some of the ladies look up from their sewing and smile. Come, your majesty, come and dance, Lucy begs. But the queen shakes her head. Even Lucy cannot make her dance again. But she taps her foot to the rhythm and hums the tune under her breath. The door opens and Edward Hyde is announced. He makes his way slowly to the centre of the room and then bows briefly to the Queen. He looks as if he is in a hurry and he feels an important man like him should not be distracted from his work. Your Majesty, he says, you wish to see the jewellery that came from the Countess of Carlisle. He looks at her impatiently and I can see he is thinking he hasn't got time for the whims of this Queen. Yes, Sir Edward, the Queen acknowledges. I was curious. The Countess of Carlisle was telling me about one piece she had acquired, a very fine piece. I would like to see it. Hyde hesitates for a moment. He is afraid that the Queen might claim the pendant and thus deprive the so-called treasury of a large injection of money. Come, Sir Edward, show me the piece. The Queen instructs. Reluctantly, Hyde digs into his pouch and pulls out the ruby pendant. He lays it on the table beside the Queen. She gasps. The ruby is caught by a shaft of light and seems to have a glowing fire within it. It is the size of a dove's egg, perfectly oval, set in a golden cage with diamonds glittering on every bar. But the Queen is expressing amazement, not admiration. Where did you say you got this, Lucy? 
Lucy replies vaguely. Her merchant's widow in London, a secret follower of the king. That belonged to my mother-in-law, Queen Anne of Denmark, the queen says, reaching out and cradling it in her hand. I was told it had been hers when I married. It was kept with the rest of the queen's jewels. I never wore it. I have not seen it for years, but I know it well. I have admired it many times. The king had a miniature of his mother wearing it. She looks hard at Lucy. So how did a merchant's wife get this? Is she not what she seems? Lucy, tell us more. Lucy looks a little embarrassed. Uh, One of my agents obtained the jewel. To the best of our knowledge, the woman concerned was given it. We have no reason to suspect her. Hyde frowns, troubled. But now we know its provenance, it disturbs me. How did it go from the royal family to this merchant's wife? Was this woman in fact part of the court? And was she playing a double game with your agent? We need to find out. He picked the pendant up from the table and bowed deeply to the Queen. With your permission, Your Majesty, I shall take the jewel back for safekeeping. But it is mine, the Queen cried. It passed to me from my husband's mother. Hyde looks annoyed. But you would wish it kept safely, Your Majesty, I am certain. The Queen starts to weep. Hyde coughs uncomfortably. Lucy again puts her arms around the Queen and whispers something in her ear. For a moment the two of them are locked together and then they part. The Queen composes herself and sits up straight in her chair. Oh, take it, take it, Sir Edward. As you know, I sold many of my jewels to support my dear husband during the war I shall not begrudge this to my son. She gives Hyde a wintry smile. I could not have worn it anyway, as I am in widow's weeds. It would not be fitting. She dismisses him with a wave of the hand. Go, Sir Edward, and sell the thing. Make sure you get a good price for it, Zoe. Relieved, Hyde bows once more and then turns round and strides out of the room. Lucy says something into the Queen's ear and then follows in his direction. I wonder if I should follow him also, but decide that he will summon me if he needs to. And what about Lucy? Will she be involved in this? It is all getting very complicated. And then, and then, there is Judith Pettigrew. Could she possibly be a double agent? Might she have infiltrated the court? Maybe stolen some jewellery? The more I think of that straightforward, gentle lady, the less likely it seems. And surely she would not have given me the pendant if she'd stolen it. I decide that I will speak up for her if I'm asked. I would not wish her to be under suspicion. Anne Hyde is very relieved when the Queen announces that she will retire to rest before dinner. 
I thought she would never dismiss us, she groaned. I told you, the Queen's rooms are the most boring place at court. Let's go now and see if we can find some gallants to amuse us. I placed my hand on her arm. I do not think your father would be pleased, I say. I don't give a fig for my father. Anne pinches her cheeks and checks her curls. Are you coming or not? I have to pay a visit. I will not be gone for long. I gather up my skirts. I must just go to fetch my cloak. A visit? Who are you visiting, Mary? Do you have a gallant of your own? I smile. If only she knew. No, I have no gallant. It is another old friend of my mother's. I will not be above an hour, I promise. I wrap my heavy cloak around me and step through the courtyard and out of the main gate of the Louvre. Following the directions that Lucy Walter had given me, I walk for around 20 minutes. She is living in a tenement in one of the better areas of Paris. I guess that being the mother of the king's child must mean that she is getting some funds. I go up the stairs to the third floor and knock tentatively. On the other side of the door, I can hear a woman singing. She's singing a children's song, and every time she reaches the chorus, a child's voice joins in with squeals of laughter. I knock more loudly, as she obviously hasn't heard me. I hear footsteps, and the door opens a crack. It is a young girl, barely more than 13, I would guess, in a dirty apron and greying coif. She looks at me curiously. I have come to see Mistress Walter, I tell her. She invited me to call. Who shall I say? The door opens a crack. Tell her Lady Mary Hyde. I met her last night. The maid looks me up and down, takes in the quality of my gown and the pearls around my neck. Come in. She leads me inside and through the inner door into a wood panel parlour with a large window looking out over the street below. Lucy Walter is sitting beside the fire in a wooden armchair. On her lap she holds a small boy who is quite beautiful with dark curls and olive skin. She wears a faded apricot coloured silk gown which points up the golden brown of her eyes and skin. She finishes her singing and putting her hands over the little boys makes a clapping motion. Lady Mary Hyde, the young girl announces. Why are you leaving her standing there? Lucy Walton demands. Take her cloak. Grudgingly, the maid reaches up to catch my cloak as I let it fall down my shoulders. Lucy Walter lifts the boy off her lap. Sit down, please, Lady Mary. She points to a chair on the other side of the fireplace. And Tabitha, fetch some wine and biscuits. Ain't none, the girl is scornful. Well, then some small ale, but hurry up. We have few enough guests without you managing to drive them away. The little boy walks up to me and looks into my face. His black eyes are bright with intelligence. I'm Jamie, he announces. My papa is the king. He prunes himself a little as he says this. I know, 
I answer seriously, and I am sure he is very proud of you. I don't see him very often, he confides. If you see him, please tell him I want a rocking horse. I want to hunt like he does. I don't think I will see him soon, I say, but if I do, I will pass on your message. The little boy looks at me intently. Do you promise? Mama keeps saying she will get me one, but she never has enough money. Lucy looks at him bitterly. See, the poor child barely has a coat to call his own. To my mind, Jamie looks well-dressed. And the toy that he wants, a rocking horse, is very expensive and rare. But then he is the son of a king. Tabitha reappears with two tankards of small ale on a tray, which she dumps on the table. Tabitha, take Jamie to the kitchen and give him some bread and milk. Lucy Walter turns to her son. Jamie, go with Tabitha and be a good boy. Don't go chasing the kitchen cat or she'll scratch. Tabitha holds out her hand to the little boy and they leave together. She seems barely older than he is but I can see that she takes care of him as she ushers him out of the room. So, you are welcome, Lady Mary. You see here what straits I am reduced to, but the little that I have, you are welcome to. I look around. The room is smallish and the furniture a little old, but it is comfortable and she obviously has the funds for a maidservant. I lean across to her confidingly. I was shocked to see how you were treated last night, Mistress Walter. It must make you very angry. Lucy Walter nods and takes a dainty sip of small ale. Yes, indeed it does. It is not the king. It is those around him. They find me embarrassing. They do not want me at court. But what can I do? I have to fight for my son. She takes a deeper draught of ale. What purer emotion than the love a mother has for her child, I venture, and yet you are ignored. I even saw one woman laughing. If it were me, I would want to pay back some of these courtiers, and yes, the king too. His son should not want for anything, and this the mother of his son should be received at court. Lucy Walter looks very sad for a moment, but then she rallies. Oh no, I am received at court. When the king is present, then he will see me. I still spend time with him in his chamber, you know. He tells me that he loves me, but he is so busy. And that Edward Hyde, he is always putting off giving me money. So how do you survive? I ask. If Edward Hyde is slow in paying you, how do you keep food on the table? Lucy Walter smiles. I have other lovers, my dear. They help me out sometimes. But they should not be supporting the king's son. I went last night to remind the king of Jamie's position and to persuade him to let us live at court. But I've tried before, and all he does is say he will do something soon. Soon! My son is nearly four. It seems to me that you have little reason to love the king, I say carefully, 
There are those who argue that he is more influenced by pleasure rather than duty. I've even heard some say it would be better if he never regained his throne. There is a silence in the room, broken only by the hissing of the wood fire. I wonder if I have misjudged my comment. These are only malcontents, Lucy asserts. I've heard about them. Some say Prince James would be better. And I must admit, I like the prince. And others talk about coming to terms with Parliament. Traitors, the lot of them. Her face flushes with anger. Why are you asking me about this? Are you one of those malcontents? Please do not stay with me any longer if you do not support the king. No, I am a loyal subject of King Charles, I protest. Why would I come over to join the court if I were not? Lucy Walter looks thoughtful. You could be a spy, she suggests, a gleam in her eye. I am no spy, I say vehemently. I am a cousin of the Hydes, and no family more loyal to the king can be imagined. Lucy Walter reaches out her hand and pats mine. I am sorry, Lady Mary. I did not mean to impugn your loyalty. I get angry when I hear of such stories because of my boy. Do I want him to spend all his life like this, exiled and of no account, with all the French royals looking down on us? He has royal blood. He deserves lands, a place at court, even a dukedom. I don't say it, but I doubt that little Jamie will ever become a duke. His mother continues to explain. For his sake, the king has to regain his throne and give him the standing that a royal son deserves. You must understand that. So although I am very angry with Charles, I will never go against him. I have to admit, her argument makes sense. Even if she wanted to give information against Charles, she seems to barely see him now. And though she is estranged from the king, the only hope of her son doing well is for Charles to be restored. She is not the spy at the centre of Charles's court. Now it is her turn to find out about me. I tell her that I am gen of gentle stock, but not highly bred. I do not think I will make an impact on the exile court. We both sip our ale and stretch our feet to the fire. Lucy Walter leans back in her chair and looks me up and down. You are a pretty woman, she says. You may well make an impact. The king always welcomes a new face. Really, I'm not interested. I drain my tankard. I prefer the company of women. Lucy Walter laughs. <laughs> of course you do. We are much nicer than men. But dear Mary, there are certain functions that only a man can fulfil. You are young and full of hope, but only a man can give you joy in bed and only a man can look after you and your children. I think differently. Women can exist without men. I look challengingly at her. So how do you plan to do that? She sneers. I am silent. I can't answer her on that one. I get up from my seat and curtsy quickly to her. I must be on my way. I'm expected back at court. Thank you for inviting me. 
It has been a pleasure to meet you and Jamie. Come again, she says, especially if you see the king and find out what is bothering him. Yes, I will. I look forward to seeing you again. And you, Lady Mary. As I leave the room and make for the front door, and a small voice pipes up. Don't forget my rocking horse. I turn back and see Jamie waving from the kitchen. I laugh and promise to do my best. I walk swiftly back to the Louvre and make my way to Anne's room. She is excited, barely able to keep still. I help her get dressed and we both drink some wine before we go down to drink the company. The evening is difficult. I am on the sidelines while Anne flirts with Prince James. They are both stricken with each other, although I tell her she must be careful. A prince can get away with any number of love affairs, but a young girl has only one reputation. Anne laughs at me and continues to blow kisses in the prince's direction. I have a couple of dances with undistinguished young men, but apart from that I drink too much wine in an effort to make the partying bearable. When I get to bed that night, the wine keeps me awake. I'm no further in my quest for the spy, and now I worry about that royal pendant. Who gave it to Judith Pettigrew? Had it been stolen? Edward Hyde be, would be seeking explanations, I am sure of it. And who would he hold responsible? I dread to think. <laughs>